As I've said on our podcast before, I don't really believe in ghosts. But I also believe that I don't know everything, and I've not experienced everything this world has to offer. To be honest, I want to believe. I'm fascinated with ghost stories and anything paranormal, and I want someone to prove to me that these things exist. It just hasn't happened yet. My friend Mandy, who's with me today, is a little different than me. She's a believer in the supernatural. That's not to say that she believes everything that she hears. She believes that if it cannot be debunked or explained, it's probably a haunting. She enjoys ghost hunts and has attended many with historical societies and been to the straight farmhouse. She enjoys learning the history of the areas as much as she enjoys the hunt itself. We are going to be attending a paranormal tour of Eloise Asylum together this June. If you're not familiar with Eloise, you can listen to episode 14 where Jeff and I discuss the history of the asylum. But today, Mandy and I will be discussing the Perrin family haunting. Hi, true crime fans. You're tuning into Coffee, Murder, and Mystery, a true crime podcast where we discuss murder, mystery, and the supernatural. Don't forget to hit subscribe. Hi, I'm your host, Melissa, and my friend Mandy is back here with me today. Hello, everyone. It was 1971 when the Perrin family moved to Harrisville, Rhode Island. The family of seven, Roger, Caroline, and their five daughters, Andrea, Nancy, Christine, Cindy, and April, moved into a 14-room farmhouse on 200 acres of land. As the story goes, the family noticed odd things happening from the start, but they were mostly small occurrences, things that you could brush off, especially with five children in the home. It was things like the broom would be moved, and there would be piles of dirt laying in the middle of a cleanly swept floor. Household items continuously moved out of place. Strange noises that could be attributed to living in a very old house. But the children, who were all close, started noticing their belongings being moved around and would argue amongst themselves, blaming the others for touching and moving their things. Their mother, Caroline, who was not accustomed to them acting this way, started to intervene to no avail. I do know that poltergeists have been said to be more common around females in their teenage years. The activity can be caused by the female unconsciously controlling the energy around herself. Their emotions can trigger objects to move or even hurl across the room. Really? And when I think back to being a teenager, like that never happened to me, but I do remember being very emotional and I feel like maybe if I tried harder, I could have did it. I used to try when I was little. Did you try? Not as a teenager. I think when I was really little, I did try, you know, but it never worked. I don't know if I was a teenager either, but I just remember being little and like staring at something. Like if I try hard enough, will it move? Right. (laughs) But the parents described other things too, like an instance such as a father, son, and dog manifesting at the top of the stairs and they would just stare off into the distance. The couple's youngest daughter, April, insisted there was a spirit of a girl in her closet who wanted to play with her toys. She made friends with a spirit named Olivia. 
And one female, I can't be sure if it was the mother or Andrea, described seeing themselves as an elderly woman manifested in front of herself, wearing 17th century clothing. She believes this means we should consider reincarnation or that we could be part of a multi-dimensional universe that's able to like cross over itself. Carolyn also described a time where she saw two men sitting at her dining table. One of the men noticed Caroline and pointed, trying to bring the attention of the other man to her presence. The parent family stated that they feel that the men at the table saw Caroline as the ghost. I thought, how very others of them. You know, I forgot about that movie where the family are dead and they're ghosts and they don't know it. Right. They think that the live family that's moved into the house is haunting them. Creepy. At first, the children seemed to enjoy the spirits, seeing them as friends or playmates. And I read in most places the word babysitter. And I certainly hope that wasn't the case. I hope nobody was ever using ghosts as a babysitter. I hope that's some fabrication from somewhere. But the girls even stated that the ghosts would come into their bedrooms at night, kissing them on their heads while they were drifting off to sleep, which seems so sweet. I have heard that spirits can sometimes appear friendly in order to gain trust. When my sister and I were younger, we had a Ouija board, which I don't recommend, but we were playing around with it. And I had actually read a book from the library. That's how old I am. It said that the spirits would do this. So the Ouija board, I think it worked. I don't know if it it really was working or she was tricking me. I don't think she was, but it would say really nice things to us. Like you're pretty or you're nice and stuff like that, which was kind of creepy. I know that we're not talking about a Ouija board here, but I think it's kind of the same thing. Right. They just try to gain trust. Be nice to somebody and they're going to trust you more. Diabolical. But it really changed really fast. Roger, the girl's father, started to open up doors and be overwhelmed with the smell of rotting flesh. And I said it when we did the Amityville episode, and I'll say it again. How do people know what rotting flesh smells like? I mean, do you know? You know, no. But if I had to guess, I I feel like it would smell like rotten meat or roadkill. Yeah, I've just wondered that. Like, you see that in so many places. And I guess you do smell like roadkill sometimes, like if you're on a road trip or something. But I just yeah. wonder how everybody always knows what rotting flesh smells like. Like, if I smell, if I opened a door and smell like a really bad smell, I don't, I just don't think that would be the first thing that popped into my head, you know? I don't know that I would use the word meat, but I think maybe I would say I smell something dead because I, I think we all know what that smells like. Yeah, maybe that is what they're describing. That's what I think. Who knows? And I guess their cellar was really, really creepy and just full of strange noises. And everybody just got goosebumps and nobody wanted to go in there. The dad would at times go in there when he felt he had to because like the heater would break or something like that. The mom, Carolyn, seemed to be the family member that had the most consistent negative haunting experiences. And while in the home, she was said to have been visited nightly by a woman wearing gray and her head was hanging to one side. And the first thing that I thought of when I heard this was, I wonder if that's where they got the inspiration for the bent neck lady. 
Oh my gosh, I remember seeing the Bennett lady for the first time and she was terrifying. Like as an adult, I, I literally would think of her when I was trying to go to sleep. If you guys aren't familiar with what we're talking about, this is The Haunting of Hill House. It was really good. I mean, I, I liked it anyway. Yeah, I think I think we both liked it. We would discuss every episode every day. Yeah, I think <laughs> all four of us, because we work together, we have two other girls that work with us, we would, yeah. we would all discuss it. Yeah. So the woman clearly didn't want Carolyn in the home and would tell her to get out or she would be driven out by doom and gloom. The ghost that visited the children in the house turned dark as well. The family had stated that there were attacks that they won't speak of publicly, and they just left our minds to wander by saying that there were five young girls in the house. And so those bedtime kisses aren't seeming so sweet now. And I guess the girls' beds would rock on the floor, and there were even reports of like beds levitating. Carolyn went to a local historical society and even spoke to the local historian. She was looking into the history of the Rhode Island farmhouse, and what she found was the Black Book of Burville. Now, this book was used to record deaths in the area that could be attributed to like suspicious circumstances, foul play, and what seemed to me like basically anything unnatural. She claims to have found quite a few things. Prior to 1971, the farmhouse was in the Arnold family. Miss John Arnold, I hate the way they don't use her actual first name. It's just Miss John Arnold. Um, you know, we've they come do so that. far. Yeah, they do that. Like women didn't have their own names. They were right. defined by the, the men. Right. We've come so far. Thank God. So Miss John Arnold committed suicide by hanging in the rafters of the family barn. Is this the bentneck lady? Yeah, surprisingly, no. No, yeah, because I know the other bentneck lady got her neck from hanging. She so. did, and that because that makes sense. Mr. John Arnold followed suit later on, joining his wife by going up into the eaves of the home and drinking horse liniment. Jarvis Smith and Edwin Arnold supposedly froze to death and were found under the blacksmith shop. Now, I didn't see if this was like at different times or the same time. I suppose it doesn't really matter. Prudence Arnold was said to have been raped and murdered by a farmhand, William E. Knowlton. Her throat was cut with a straight razor. And apparently this was so bad, like she was almost decapitated. He then took his own life as well. And then finally, Bathsheba Thayer Sherman. Bathsheba was the ghost the family felt was troubling the mother, the bent neck lady of the Perrin family. Bathsheba supposedly murdered her own infant with a knitting needle as a sacrifice to Satan, a witch who practiced the black arts of magic. She was described as bitter, vindictive, vengeful, and unholy. There are claims that she would often starve and beat her staff. The sacrifice kept her looking young and ravishingly beautiful. Bathsheba died of baffling paralysis and her body turned to stone. Now, sometime in the midst of all this activity, the Warrens entered into the picture. If you're not familiar with the Warrens, Ed was a self-proclaimed demonologist and Lorraine worked beside him as a clairvoyant and medium. Together, they founded the New England Society for Psychic Research. It is the oldest paranormal group in New England, 
and is said to have used doctors, researchers, police, nurses, college students, and clergy members to assist with investigations. Ed and Lorraine were both members of the Roman Catholic Church and believed that demonic forces would possess those that didn't have faith. We touched on Ed and Lorraine a bit in our Amityville episode, but I didn't really know a lot about them at that time. Um, I will say for as many supporters as they have, they have an equal number of critics. It's said that the Warrens were not called directly by the Perrin family, but by a concerned family friend. Although I didn't find information that could discern between their visits, it seemed to me that there were many, many visits and all for investigational purposes. Lorraine Warren immediately stated that she felt a presence in the home, a demonic presence. She even told the family that she felt a presence in the pantry of the home that was evil and they should seal the pantry up and never open it again. After their investigations, the Warrens and the parents agreed to a seance. But during the seance, something went wrong. It said that Carolyn was thrown across the room and Roger threw the Warrens out of the house in fear for his wife's safety. And this is how the premise for the movie The Conjuring was born. The Warrens and the parents maintained that the events of the movies are true and were actually scarier in real life, aside from the seance. In the movie, they omitted the seance and replaced it with an exorcism. The Warrens were able to rid the family of the evil spirits, but the parents stated that in real life, the seance made the haunting worse. They suspect that Lorraine Warren opened a gateway that could not be closed. I'm thinking about the movie and that part when they're playing the clapping hide and seek game had me on the edge of my seat. I love scary movies, but the parts that build up suspense really get to me. I thought that that was really freaky in the movie as well. And they say that the clapping game did happen and was much scarier in real life, which I have trouble believing because it was really scary on the movie, I thought. It really was. But I mean, I guess let's just say that they're telling the truth. I guess it would be scarier in real life. It would. It would be terrifying. But they say that they got used to it for the most part. And they lived in the home for 10 years. I mean, and they definitely described some creepy tales that would have had me living in my car with my five kids if I had to. I really didn't find a lot on it, but I know that there are claims out there that the dad was also molested by a ghost. It's been described that ghosts like circled, like lined up and circled around Caroline's bed with torches. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it, it, does, it does sound a little outrageous. <laughs> But not everyone believes the claims of the Perrin family. And other people have looked into the history of the home and feel that what the Perrins claimed was inaccurate. One of the people who seek to dispel the rumors is actually Norma Sutcliffe. Norma and her husband purchased the house after the Perrins. She made a very interesting YouTube video. If you're interested in watching it, it's called The Conjuring House Owner, Norma Sutcliffe, disproves movie and Andrea Perrin's story, which I think is literally the longest title I've ever heard to a YouTube video. Yeah. But she's definitely like a, an older woman. I think, you know, probably she's not well versed in, in the YouTube world. If you do decide to watch the video, please, please watch it till the end. Norma and her husband lived in the house somewhere along the lines of 20 years. They sold it um, in 2019 to a couple that does paranormal investigations. 
Norma claims that she was not happy that the Conjuring movie was being made and that her privacy was not protected. She claims that there were trespassers to her Rhode Island home all hours of the day and night. I've seen many articles online claiming that Norma has experienced paranormal activity in the house, but she says this just is not true. She claims she's heard noises and many things that can mainly be attributed to living in an old farmhouse. She states that the house is not haunted and blames Andrea Perrin for the falsities that she claims are out there. Andrea Perrin, who is an adult now, has written three books regarding the family's supposed experiences at the house, and she also gives lectures. Norma raises many great points throughout the video, and when they purchased the house, she couldn't have known that a movie would be made. I genuinely have sympathy for what she went through with her invasion of privacy, but more toward the end of the video, Norma also speaks about the experiences she had when she called TAPS, and they came to her home to investigate. They gathered a small amount of evidence, mainly having to do with the closet door during their investigation. She also speaks about what sounds like numerous meetings with Andrea Perrin, even making videos with her. Maybe I'm the only one who finds this strange, but haunted or not, if the previous owners of my home came to visit me, it would be brief, and I wouldn't want to be scheduling something in the future. Maybe this is just my inner introvert, I'm not sure, but I definitely wouldn't want visits from past owners. I agree. As an introvert, I don't think I would want a previous owner to visit. I do have to wonder, though, why did Norma call Taps if she didn't believe the house was haunted? She kind of does go through that, saying that like her friends kept saying like she should call. I think that they were kind of local, you know, and it was like a famously haunted house. She never really did claim that she thought the house was haunted. She did say she was kind of going along with everything just for like TV purposes. But I kind of feel like if she didn't want attention on the house, you know, maybe that was the wrong way to go. Oh, right. That's that's what I'm thinking. It seems like she doesn't want attention, but then she makes videos. And I was kind of confused about that, too, which I, I get the impression her and Andrea's relationship was different then. And she says she did not ever think that these videos would end up on YouTube. And she is older because, I mean, we know if you make a video with somebody like that, it's, it's going to end up on YouTube, you know. And I could say she is old enough to where I would think, you know, this could kind of pass by her. But, I mean, why were they making them then? You know, what, what did she think Andrea was going to do with them? I was, I was just kind of thrown off by that whole thing. Not that I think she had ill intention, but right. I don't know. I mean, maybe just she weird. just wanted to make the video to set the record straight. Who knows? Who knows? So, but Norma also detailed the history of the home during the video. And according to the other sources, I found she does appear to be correct. I ran across a site called Skeptical Inquirer. Kenny Biddle wrote an article and he really took the time to go through everything. Remember all the deaths that supposedly occurred in the home that I talked about earlier? Yeah. They appear to have come from the Black Book of Burville. If you remember what I said earlier, this book outlined all the deaths in the area that were not from natural causes, and it was in use until like 1991. But the thing about it is, back in these days, there were many common surnames in the area, but the families were not related, making it easy to find someone with the last name Arnold and assume that they were associated with the farmhouse when they actually were not. 
It was said earlier that both Mr. and Miss John Arnold committed suicide. Miss Arnold by hanging in the barn, and John killed himself by drinking horse liniment in the eaves of the home. Although the couple did commit suicide, they did commit their suicides in their own home, which was in Tax District 1, while the farmhouse sat in Tax District 6. Apparently, John's obituary and his death certificate both list different poisons. One was listed as horse liniment, while the other states Paris green, which contains arsenic. Have you even heard of horse liniment? I have not, but I did Google it, and it's a topical cream that soothes the muscles and joints of working horses. And surprisingly, it works on humans too, but you cannot ingest it. Doesn't seem like something you would want to ingest. I wonder if he knew that that would like kill him. Kill I mean, him? I guess. I mean, why would you drink it otherwise, I guess? Or maybe it's just an example of how they started putting warning labels on products. You know, oh, like right. like don't use your blow dryer in the bathtub and that sort of thing. Right. <laughs> and Paris Green was actually invented as green pigment. I know I've heard of this before. I don't really know a lot about it. Where like women's eyeshadow and things, you know, they were made with different shades of green pigments that ended up being poisonous. Oh, I did hear about that before. In Paris Green, I, it wasn't like the first one that was made. Um, it was one that was made later, but it was poison and it was made as a green pigment. And they ended up doing things like killing rats with it. I think one country even like sprayed for some type of rodent or insect with it. So definitely deadly, deadly green pigment. Edwin Arnold and Jarvis Smith were have said to have froze to death under the blacksmith shop. Edwin did at one time own the farmhouse, but it seems that he was walking home in 1903, taking shortcuts across other farms when he either became lost in the dark or was too tired to go on. He did freeze to death about a mile and a half down the road from the farmhouse. Jarvis Smith who had been tried and acquitted of murder, was drunk when he decided to sleep in the shed. He froze to death in the shed, which was on the property about 200 feet from the farmhouse. Wrong place to pass out. Yeah, lots of people freeze to death around there, huh? I mean, it's up in that part of the United States. I mean, people freeze to death here in Michigan. I would think it gets really cold, especially like yeah. back in those days. They probably didn't right. have as... Is good of right. like, stuff to keep them warm. Also, they had like electric cars, so there's that. Right. A lot of walking was going on. <laughs> no heated seats. <laughs> right. Prudence Arnold and poor, poor Prudence Arnold. She was orphaned at age three. She was taken into the Richardson home to be cared for as their foster child. She was only 11 when William E. Knowlton followed her up to the second floor of the home and slit her throat with a straight razor. In trial, they found that Prudence had agreed to marry him four months prior, but changed her mind. She then refused. I guess if he couldn't marry her, then apparently no one would. But this didn't even happen in Rhode Island. This happened in Prudence's foster home in Massachusetts. The author of the article, Kenny, 
tried looking for ties between Prudence and the Arnolds that resided at the farmhouse, but he couldn't find any. It's believed that she was from a different line of Arnolds. And finally, Bathsheba Thayer Sherman. This woman seems to have gotten a really bad rap after her death. First, there's no evidence suggesting that she actually murdered her infant child. It does seem that she may have lost three children very young, but they weren't included in the Black Book of Burville. This suggests they passed from natural causes. She did have one son that actually outlived her. Thank goodness, because the poor woman. The reason they know this is because they found the information in census records. The only documents that people seem to be able to locate on her are census records, an obituary, and a will. Bathsheba was born a Thayer, and she lived on the Thayer farm until she married into the Sherman family. And then she moved over to the Sherman farm, where she lived until her death in 1885. She was buried at a local Baptist cemetery. Unfortunately, her gravestone has been vandalized, and I believe they even had to remove it because the vandalization was so bad. Andy and I went to a cemetery here in Michigan where supposedly a witch was buried. I think she was called the Idol Witch. We ended up looking up the backstory and it was almost like this as far as she got blamed for doing lots of things. But after people looked into the historical part of it, she had nothing to do with it. But her gravestone was constantly vandalized. People would, um, you know, drink beer on it, party on it, you know, dare people to go to it. And it was kind of neat because when we found the grave, her tombstone was new and nice and shiny. And we ended up finding out that the historical society had actually paid for her to have a new headstone so it was it was weird to see because you know she died i don't remember when she died but she died you know 1800s early 1900s and she had a brand new headstone so it was just nice that she she got that respect now right and i hope people don't do it again i mean they probably have to like install cameras or something Yeah, you know, to stop people from doing it, which is really unfortunate because I feel like that's so disrespectful to the dead. Not only that, but just repeating like stories like this, I feel are really disrespectful to these poor people, especially like Bathsheba, who got such a bad rap. But I feel like the Perrin family could have either done it intentionally and for profit or they could not have. Like, maybe they did have some, you know, mysterious things happening in their house, and they were, like, looking for something to blame, right? And when they looked at that book, they thought, oh, my God, all these things happened here. Maybe they didn't realize that those things really didn't happen there. Right, and and I do think, I mean, I think anything is possible, but I think people exaggerate, because I've been on ghost hunts before, and people will say, like, did you hear that loud bang? And I'm thinking, no, I, I heard a noise, like something small may have dropped on the floor, but it, it wasn't a loud bang. And I don't know, I just, I think sometimes people in general can exaggerate. And I think that sometimes people perception is, is just different. I tend to be more literal with the words that I use. Like if, if something's not loud, I don't say it's loud. And I think some people, If they hear it, they call it loud. They just exaggerate. 
Right. It's like the smallest form of exaggeration, but it's still there. Right. And I don't know that they mean to do it. I think that I just try just, to be truthful. It, it, especially with, I am more literal, literal. And with ghost stuff, I try to be truthful. Um, like, I want it to be real, but I want to know it's real. I, I don't I don't want to exaggerate it. And so what do you think about Lorraine Warren like calling out Bathsheba's name, Bathsheba, I'm sorry, I said that badly, Bathsheba's name and naming her as a dark presence in the house. I am not really sure like how she heard the name or, or if she did, but I did remember um, hearing that name Bathsheba before. Um, actually, it was the name of my friend's cat when she was little. And I remember her telling me that the name was from the Bible. So I, I looked it up and Bathsheba was married to a man and while she was married to one man, she was sunbathing and King David saw her and took a liking to her. And he actually ordered her husband to be moved to the front lines in a battle and he was killed. So then King David swooped in and married Bathsheba and they had a baby together. As the story goes, their first child died as punishment from God for David's adultery and murder. So it's just kind of interesting that in both of those stories, the women have the same name and it involves an infant dying. You know, I was kind of taken aback when the family said that they would move back there. And all the times that like Andrea Perrin, you know, she went back there after they moved out. You know, she was making movies with the new owner and whatnot. Has said that something happened, and it's insinuated that something inappropriate happened to the girls in the house. I feel like that should be taken more seriously if it were true, you know? Right, I agree. I mean, if it were true, I would not, I mean, whether it was a ghost or, or, or human, I would not take my kids back there. Right. Like I would whisk my children away as fast as I could. Right. I mean, and I think, you know, some hauntings, you know, you hear about, I think they're playful. You know, there's knocks, um, doors opening, you know, maybe little tricks. But I think when things get physical or, you know, they have ill intent, that's that's not good. That You don't go there. You leave. Right. You, you pull a Lutz family and you, you leave. Whether it was all a lie or the house was haunted, I personally think it was exaggerated at the least. I, mean, I agree. I, I mean, I think, I think all of these true, you know, supposed true stories that we make movies about or read books about, I do feel they're exaggerated. I'm not saying they are, I don't know, but that's my opinion just seems like when you start saying things like ghost or you know like lining up and like circling the mother with torches I feel like it just becomes like really unrealistic like I feel like if those things were happening we would have evidence I agree with you actually 100% because I've you know watched ghost hunts and you know TV shows and stuff and I feel like the evidence that they get even though I think it's cool, and I think it's it's neat, it's never as dramatic and as real as the people that are being haunted say it is. I can't explain that. I don't. 
I don't want to call anybody a liar. I'm not. But I just, I feel like there would be better evidence. But I do enjoy the evidence that people do come up with, you know, whether it's an EVP or something moving on its own that can't be explained. I think that's just as as cool as capturing, you know, a picture or something. But regardless of it all, I definitely enjoyed The Conjuring. I thought it was a great movie. Yeah, it was actually one that did creep me out a little bit. We're going to try something a little bit new this time, and we want to hear from you. True crime fans, we want to know if you think that the parent house was haunted. Send us an email at coffeemurdermystery at gmail.com and let us know your opinion. Your email will be featured in one of our future episodes. And I want to thank you, Mandy, for doing our first paranormal episode with me today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. And thanks, everyone, for listening. And I hope that you enjoyed our first paranormal podcast as well. Stay safe, everyone. Evil spirits are everywhere. Or maybe they're not. Bye. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to Coffee, Murder, and Mystery. You can find us on the web at www.coffeemurderandmystery.com. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and we also have a YouTube channel. All references for today's podcast are available in our show notes. If you enjoyed our show, please consider giving us an Apple Podcast 5-star rating, sharing our show with your friends, and leaving a review. This helps us by allowing more people to find our show. If you would like to support our show with a financial contribution, please consider joining our Patreon. Joining our Patreon at the $5 level will give you a bonus episode on the second week of the month, as well as a second bonus episode on the fourth week of the month. Or go to buymeacoffee.com for a one-time contribution. We appreciate all of our listeners. We wouldn't be able to do this without you. Thank you so much for listening. The information provided in this podcast is solely of our opinion and based upon research that we have conducted via the internet. If you feel that we have represented something inaccurately or unfairly, you can send us an email at coffeemurdermystery at gmail.com. Thanks for your support.